They break down the altars of Balaam in his presence, and the images that were on high above them he cut down, and the groves and the carved images and the molten images he break in pieces and made dust of them and strode it upon the graves of them that had sacrificed unto them. And he burnt the bones of the priests upon their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so did he in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon, even unto Naphtali with their mattocks round about. And when he had broken down the altars and the groves and had beaten the graven images into powder and cut down all the idols throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. And then, uh, verse 8, yeah. And now in the 18th year of his reign, when he'd purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, and get these names again, I'm not going to try it, to state, and at the end of the verse it says that they were sent to repair the house of the Lord as God. Down to verse number 14. And when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found a book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. And Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah delivered the book to Shaphan. Shaphan. And Shaphan carried the book to the king and brought the king word back again, saying, All that was committed to thy servants, they do it. And they have gathered together the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have delivered it into the hand of the overseers and to the hand of the workmen. And Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass, when the king had heard the words of the law, that he rent his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, and Hakim, son of Shaphan, and Abdon, the son of Micah, and Shaphan, the scribe, and Isaiah, a servant of the kings, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, and for them that are left in Israel and in Judah, concerning the works of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out upon us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do after all that is written in this book. And then down to chapter 35, just the first verse. Moreover, Josiah kept a Passover unto the Lord in Jerusalem, and they killed the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. And then over in the passage, down to the end, to verse, uh, verse 18, And there was no Passover like to that kept in Israel from the days of Samuel the prophet, neither did all the kings of Israel keep such a Passover as Josiah kept, and the priests and the Levites and all Judah and Israel that were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem in the 18th year of the reign of Josiah was this Passover kept. And then verse 25, um, and Jeremiah lamented for Josiah and all the singing men and the singing women spake of Josiah in the lamentations to this day and made them an ordinance in Israel and behold they are written in the lamentations. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness According to that which was written in the law of the Lord, and his deeds first and last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Now that's our reader. So we're coming to this last study, and we come to this very young king. And so the context is different when this king takes the throne than the other three that we've been thinking about. The national context is quite similar, and the pattern is quite similar to those that we've been considering. Apart from this, that Josiah lived in a particularly evil day in Judah. The northern kingdom that I've spoken about so much in these studies, that northern kingdom, which you remember was separated from the southern kingdom after the reign of Solomon. So you had Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and you remember Jeroboam in the north, Rehoboam in the south, and they were 
godless kings. And in the north, they were continuously godless kings. In the south, there was these revival kings and kings that were good. But by and large, again, the drift was towards wickedness. So in the days of Josiah, the history of the northern kingdom was no more. Eighty years before Josiah came to the throne, God had brought the Assyrian Empire down upon them in judgment and in discipline. And because of their continued rebellion against God, God had taken them out of that land, away into captivity, and they were no more as an entity, as a nation. They never have been, they've never been recovered, not like Judah that went away into Babylon, and then a remnant came back into the land. When the captivity took place of the northern kingdom, there was no recovery from that even to this day. So the ruthless Assyrian Empire and its army came down as an instrument of God's judgment and there was a devastating destruction wreaked upon the northern kingdom. The death toll was huge. The land was laid bare and waste and the inhabitants taken out, not in their entirety, but most of them taken out and lost into slavery. And this desperate, desperate situation you would think would have a real effect upon that southern kingdom. Their cousins up north gone. The discipline of God come in devastating power upon that nation because of their idolatry and wickedness. And here is this smaller nation, this nation that's known times of great blessing. You remember the days of Hezekiah, Jehoshaphat, and all of that we've been thinking about. And you think about these glory days in the life of this nation, you would think that seeing the effect of the Assyrians coming and taking them away, you would think it would have an effect and put fear into the hearts of the people of Judah. Well, it didn't actually. It didn't seem to have any effect. In fact, the eight decades that followed the fall of the northern kingdom, Judah just sank deeper and deeper into sin. It didn't have the effect you think it would have. And God sent prophet after prophet, even after the northern kingdom was gone. You have the preaching of Micah, of Zephaniah, of Jeremiah, and Habakkuk. They all took place in Judah after the fall of the northern kingdom. So God is sending his prophets time and time again with warnings. And when you read the writings of Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Micah, and Jeremiah, there is so much of reference in relation to what happened in the north and a warning not to let that happen amongst them. Those warnings went unheeded. And despite the warning of impending judgment, unless there was repentance, the nation just continued a pathway down towards sin. They would not listen to the voice of God. They would not heed the warning of God. Now that is replicated in the lives of God's people in the Bible so often. For example, if you think about uh, the life of Samson. Now there is a man who was on a journey. And that journey, when you read his story, is always a downward journey. He's always going down somewhere, going down somewhere, going down somewhere. And it wasn't just geographical, it was metaphorical as well. He was going down. And there were times in his life when God intervened. I mean, he even put a line in his path. God intervened and dramatically intervened to, to warn him and to stop him. And he simply overrode the voice of God in his life. 
He just went round it or over it or through it, whatever way. It, it refused to stop him on that downward spiral. And he paid the consequence of it. So too will the nation of Judah in the large flow or the, the big picture, their flow into ultimate captivity. <coughs> now the personal context then of this king is that the time is almost at an end for the nation of Judah. That their wickedness has been increasing and you've got this young boy who comes to the throne and it's almost inevitable that what happened to the northern kingdom is going to happen to the southern kingdom. It's almost inevitable. It's almost unstoppable. And so here is a young boy and he comes to the throne and we read that in chapter 34 that he was eight years old when he came to the throne. Just a boy. His father and his grandfather really were very wicked kings. His grandfather was Manasseh, who ruled for 55 years in Judah. When you read the history of this man, it was the most vile life imaginable. He was so wicked in his lifestyle and what he imposed upon the nation. He dedicated himself to removing God's word from throughout the whole of the nation of Judah and also replacing the worship of God with the worship of idols. He was a wicked king. He even sacrificed some of his own children to satanic deities in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. He shed so much innocent blood. 2 Kings chapter 21 verse 16 says that Jerusalem was filled with it from one end to the other. It was a time of slaughter. It was a time of injustice. It was a time of great wickedness. That was his grandfather. And his father was not much better, Ammon. He followed in Manasseh's footsteps, except it was so heinous and wicked that even his servants couldn't cope with it, and they assassinated him in the second year of his reign. You couldn't make it up. It's like one of these plots. And they couldn't cope with the wickedness that the king was imposing upon the nation, so they slew him. And there's an eight-year-old boy now who begins to reign in Jerusalem and does so for 31 years. We're not going to say much about him at the age of eight, for what can you do at the age of eight? Well, actually, when you listen to some folks' testimonies, you can do a lot at the age of eight. And terrible wickedness is done at seven and eight years old and then repented from and so on. But actually, there's not much said about this boy at the age of eight. But something's said about him at the age of 16. For it says in verse number 2 of chapter 34, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the ways of David his father. He declined neither to the right hand or to the left, for in the eighth year of his reign, so he's 16, <coughs> 16 years old. Now I said quite a bit about this earlier, and I'm going to say quite a bit about it again tonight except we've gone down an age bracket. We were speaking about 25 years of age earlier, now we're down to 16 years of age. So all of you who thought that I was only talking to old folk when I was speaking to folk who are 25, I'm now at 16, and so this covers most of the people here. 16 years old, what is said of him? It says this, While he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David, his father. There it is, there's a statement. There's an appropriate statement for a boy of 16. He began to seek after God. 16 years old. 
okay, he does that for four years, and then you discover this in the same verse, that when he's 20, he then starts a series of reforms, age appropriate. Not when he's 16, but when he's 20. And when he's 20, he starts the series of reforms in an attempt to turn the nation back from their pathway of destruction. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. And when he's 26, he discovers the Bible. That's the timeline. He's 16, he's 20, he's 26. These are the ages that we are introduced to significant events in the life of this man. So let's learn a lot about him because we do want to uh, think about his age and we want to think about the challenge of that age and his early years. It's interesting that the prevailing idolatry in the nation influenced him greatly. Thanks for those dishes, Ernie. Greatly appreciate it. <laughs> it's wonderful to have Ernie in fellowship. So the, the situation with Josiah was this, that he was influenced by all of the idolatry round about him because we are all influenced by our context. We are either influenced positively or negatively. If our context round about us is like the context this young boy had, there is a response to it. And the response he had was a good response. He wasn't influenced to go down the same path. He was influenced to change it, to hate it, to despise it, to reject it. You see, he made his own mind up at 16 years of age. Well, in general terms then, let's look at these early years. For at 16 years old, he makes a serious spiritual decision that's going to shape the rest of his life. It is often, if you've been brought up in a home where your parents are Christians or the influence upon you is Christian, then right throughout your life, you probably can't even remember a time where you didn't know or even believe about God. Maybe some of you can't actually remember a time of rebellion or rejection of the gospel because you embraced the gospel at a very young age. And you grow up with that context and you are pleasing your parents and you're pleasing your grandparents uh, and the decisions that you make which point you towards God are all done in a context where they bring you into favour with those round about So that is not a bad thing. And that's not something to reject and not something to despise. But it's something to understand. That if that is the case in your life, there will come a point, usually in your teen years, when you start to make decisions and you're not making them in order to please those people round about you. That the, the reasoning and the, the context of your decision begins to change the older you get. And so you begin to make decisions which may not please the people around about you. Now, in your teenager, that's usually every day you're making decisions like that. But big decisions, big life decisions, you begin to form your own views, you begin to form your own opinions, you begin to express them. And that's the same in spiritual things. So you have this flow as a, as a, as a child 
where you know if you say that you're a Christian and you want to be baptised and, and all the rest of it and you want friends that are Christian, you know that's actually going to please your parents and, and your family context. You know that. And then you come to this kind of age and you've got big decisions to make. 16 years old. Some of you are 16 in here. Here is Josiah. And you know what he did when he was 16? He began to seek God. He began to seek God. 16 years old. Do you know, when you're 16 in this country, there's many things you can do. Did you know, girls? I'm sure you do. Boys, did you know you can get married when you're 16? Shock, horror. Please don't. Please don't. It's a surprise. You can join the army, apparently. Although you need to be signed in, I think. Um, but you can leave school. Do you know what the significance of all of that is? That in our society, 16 is seen as an age when you can make a decision for yourself. In our society, within our legal system. Historically, that's been the case. And so, as a society, we expect and give opportunity to people at the age of 16 to act and behave and take decisions which are adult decisions with big consequences, which are your own decisions. That's what our society allows. When you come to the Bible, there is no such thing in the Bible as teenage years. They don't exist. They are something that is not in Scripture. <clears throat> you have a transition from childhood to adulthood in the Bible. You have dependence upon parents to independence. And you don't have a long, drawn-out period of living in your parents' house uh, as a kind of 35-year-old, excuse me, if you are 35 and you live in your parents' house, as a kind of dependent and um, getting your washing done, your ironing done, your, all your meals made, etc., etc., although that sounds good. Um, there's nothing like that in the Bible. You go from childhood to adulthood. So our society has brought in, in fairly recent times historically, uh, a period of time in a person's life that didn't used to exist but now does exist, which is this, that you no longer are a child, but you're no, not yet an adult. So that you are not under the authority of parents, but yet you don't seem to have any kind of responsibility for your own decision-making. Spiritually, that period doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. You see, Josiah's 16. Time to make a decision, Josiah. Time to take responsibility, even at 16. Time to make a serious decision for yourself. It's time to take consequences for these decisions. I think perhaps our expectations of each other are so low spiritually that we do not expect people who are 16 or 17 or whatever, that kind of age group, to actually make big spiritual decisions about the direction of their life and just to coast along until they get to 22 or something like that. Here's the challenge of a man who's 16, who makes a huge decision. And the decision is, he's not going to piggyback off his parents' 
Christianity or of his uh, peers or of his um, brothers or sisters or whatever, he's actually going to stand on his own two feet and he is going to seek after God. He is going to have his own relationship with God. He is going to make his own way spiritually. Let me ask you this. If you're that age group, have you ever done that? Have you ever made that decision that I am going to seek after God? That I am going to find this God that I trust in and have committed my life to and I'm going to get to know and I'm going to learn of him and I'm going to serve him and I'm going to develop a relationship with him and yes, I'm 16, 17, I've got all the time. Listen, you do have all the time that you'll ever have in life. You've got more time than you know and I know everyone says that to a younger generation. It's actually true. You have the time. You have the resources. And in our society, you have no opposition, really. No excuse to just float, to just waste away years that we all regret. Many of us wasted years during that period of our life. Don't waste them. He didn't. He began to seek after the God of David, his father. He chose wholehearted devotion to God. I want to challenge us all in this room tonight. It's been the kind of overwhelming uh, theme of these studies. It is to, to have a self-check to, to see, am I wholehearted in my devotion for the Lord? Am I holding things back or am I actually going to give it my all? Give him my all. Be serious about this. Think about what God could do through us and in us if we were wholehearted in our devotion to him within our own communities, within our own families, within our own workplaces. Think about the testimony. Think about the gospel. Wholeheartedness. D.A. Carson wrote this. He defined the Christianity of our times. Our times. We drift towards compromise and we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and we call it freedom. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we are escaping legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. It's interesting, isn't it? 16 years old. Oh, I trust that God would stir our hearts and that we wouldn't think we're too young and we wouldn't think this isn't for us and we wouldn't think this is for later in life when I'm more established and this, that, and the other is taking place. But I would just trust that we would, as a group and as individuals, embrace the challenge of this and decide individually for ourselves that we're going to get serious about God. <coughs> just to get serious about God. To lift that Bible, to bend that knee, to engage with God. 16 years old. What did he do when he was 20? 20 years old, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the card images and the molten images. So now he's 20, he's at a different stage, 
And at 16, he's pursuing God. He's starting to think seriously about his relationship with God. By the time he gets to 20, he knows, and he's probably now mature enough to actually implement these things. It's age appropriate. He's going to put into place reforms. Now, that's not a strange thing to us in our studies. That's the consistent action of these reforming and revival kings. So he begins to put these things into place, much of which was spoken about on previous sessions. He moves the reforms north to the towns of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali. And like Hezekiah, he has a big vision. He includes the whole of Israel in his vision, geographically. However, while Hezekiah could only invite the people of the north, and you may remember, as I was speaking, hopefully you remember, many of them mocked the invitation. You remember they invited him down to the Passover and they just mocked the invitation. Well, on this occasion, he doesn't just invite the northerners to participate. He actually takes the reforms north into their territory. And then by the time he returns to the capital in verse number 7, all Israel has been purged of their sin. Now, here's a historical note which probably won't interest many of you. It may interest some of you. I hope it does. But you might wonder why it is that he could do that. Well, here I'll give you a wee kind of historical snapshot. He was able to reassert control over the north because the Assyrian Empire that had conquered Israel was falling to pieces. It was fracturing through civil war. And long before this, the western part of the empire really was out of control. And so Josiah takes his reforms up into that wasteland where still there was the remnants of God's people. And he takes the reforms and he takes the purging up into these areas. He's got a big vision. And this work of purging was ongoing. I'm not going to rest at that point because I've spoken about it repeatedly about the need for consecration, the need to purge out sin in our lives before we can build, because we cannot build in a bad foundation. How often have I said that this weekend? It's another recurring theme of revival. And Jeremiah, he begins to prophesy at this time. If you read Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 2, it references the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. And so just one year after Josiah starts then, Jeremiah is also speaking. It's all happening. And so there's a cleansing, there's a purging. But you know, there's something I want to just point out about this cleansing and purging, which is different from some of the other ones. When you go into Jeremiah's prophecy in chapter 3, you discover that Jeremiah has a comment about it. It goes from verse 6 down to verse number 10. Let me read you some of it. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah, this is speaking about Israel, her treacherous sister Judah, did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? And I thought, after she has done all of this, she will return to me, but she did not return. That's Israel. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear But she too went and played the whore because she took her whoredom lightly. She polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. 
So what you discover is this, Jeremiah is looking at all of that cleansing, all of that consecration, and he says this, it's all external. It's all external. It's not from the heart. And so he compels them to worship Jehovah. And as long as Josiah is alive, there will be no open adultery, um, idolatry. And externally, the worship of Jehovah will be maintained. But as soon as Josiah goes, the thing falls to bits. You see, you cannot build that which is sustainable on the imposition of externalities. You just can't do it. You cannot impose spirituality upon anyone, not even upon yourself. It has to come from the heart. So at 16 years old, he pursues God. At 20 years old, what does he do? He implements reforms, but these reforms actually are ineffective in the long term because they don't touch the hearts of the people. Now we come to the main point. Because when he's 26 years old, he discovers the Bible. You say, hold on a minute here. 16 years old, he seeks after God. Yes, he does, but he doesn't have a Bible. 20 years old, he brings in reforms to consecrate and purge the land. Yes, he does, but he doesn't have a Bible. 26 years old before he got a Bible into his hands. What happened was this, and I'll not go through the details of it, but in 2 Chronicles chapter 34 that we read from, you discover that he implements a cleansing of the land and the house of God, and we've seen that before um, in the life of Hezekiah. It's happening again. And during what was a well-funded and a well-organized restoration of the temple, a book is discovered in the temple. You try and get this into your mind in the sense that all of this is going on and they don't have the written word of God. It's not there. It's not that they're following it. They're not referring to it. They don't possess it. They don't even know about it. How can that be? And it's actually in the temple. So what happens is in verse 14, they're bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord and the priests found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Had been lost, discarded, disregarded. The word of God lost in the house of God. It's actually unbelievable. It's like a Bible being lost in a church and the church functioning without it ever again. It's a temple that was functioning to some extent without the word of God. It was a people who were functioning without the word of God. And it's remarkable that the book of the law should be lost in the temple. It's unbelievable. And do you know what they were enduring? The awful judgment of divine silence. This is my point. I know it's warm in here and I'm not along tonight, but this is my main point. The awful judgment of divine silence which had been prophesied by Amos in chapter 8 and verse 11 of his prophecy. Listen to what God had said. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine in the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Here are a group of people, the people of God, and God sends them a famine. And what is that famine? It's a silence. He will not speak to them. Such was their wickedness. 
The voice of God would not be heard amongst them. It's not that they're unwilling to, to hear what God has to say. God's not speaking. And their sin has closed divine communication from them. Now, there's a scary thought. And the word of God is lost in the house of God. Well, you know, this man finds it, Shaphan or Shaphan. And he's given a big report on the building program. You know, the guy who's got to go up and give the account. And he's given a big report about all they've done and what they've done. And he says, and it's like an afterthought. He says, oh, and we found a book. So he gives this big report, and we found a book. <coughs> the king's intrigued. You found a book? What's the book? And it's, scroll, it's obviously not a book, it's scrolls. But the scroll was probably, so the commentaries say, was probably the Pentateuch, probably the five books of Moses. But the book from which he read was singular, and it seems that the book from which he read was the book of Deuteronomy. And the king listens while that book is read. And he responds. And he was smitten with fear and grief. He's listening to the word of God for the first time. You remember times when you have listened to the word of God as if it were for the first time. And it's come to you like an arrow landing in a sure place. <clears throat> it's like whatever metaphor you want, it's like a lightning bolt. It's like a shaft of life light right into you and God speaks to you through his word. And sometimes it produces fear and dread. It did in this man. And no wonder if it was the book of Deuteronomy, what would he have listened to? Well, first 13 chapters would have convicted him about the wickedness that the nation were actually practising. <clears throat> chapter 14 to chapter 18 would have disturbed him because of what they had failed to do. And chapter 27 to chapter 30 would have warned him about what God was doing and about to do. You see, now he is informed, now he has heard the word of God, now he can react. The important point is just this. The word of God was lost to him. But then it was delivered to him. Now he has the opportunity to react. The challenge I think I want to bring is in this point. When you think about God and your understanding of God, where does that come from? Where does it come from? So if I was going to ask you, what do you know of God? What do you know of your God? What do you know about God? It's not, a, it's not a silly question. It's a serious question. What would your answer be to that? What is the source of your information? And probably I would say the Bible. Please don't ask me any more than that. That'll do. Just the Bible. You know, it's the thing, sort of thing. What's he speaking on? The Bible, because you can't remember. Uh, what's he speaking about? God. Um, the Bible. Well, actually, when you think about this, if the Bible is not open to you and the Bible is not understood by you, what is the source of your understanding? It's just your imagination. That's all it is. It's your subjective experience. It's your acceptance or, or your rejection of what you've heard other people say. 
based on the convincing argument they put up. It's the force of personality by the person who delivers whatever it is to you. It's all these things. But what is the source? I remember here at Auchinfoyle, and I actually noted it down in my notes, it was a few years ago, and I began a study on the person of Christ with this statement in my notes. I said to the folks that were here, I want you to think of three words. The words were assume, presume, and suppose. And the point I was making about these synonyms in the English language is there is a subtlety of meaning between the three words. So when you think about the word assume, assumption, the dictionary would tell you that means something that's taken for granted, usually as part of a discussion or argument. Is our knowledge of God assumed? Something that we just take for granted. Then the word presumption is the same but with an additional connotation of confidence or certainty. So that is, there are times when your assumptions harden into presumptions and you become entrenched in them. So you assume something and then you become absolutely certain about your assumption. It's called a presumption. On the other hand, in the other direction, there is a supposition, suppose, that's when you assume something and then you're not so confident about it and you suppose it is true. So there's, there's doubt. So you get your assumption in the middle, presumption on one side, really certain about what you assume. On the other side, not quite so certain. And you get three words. You have the words assume, presume, and suppose. None of these words are sufficient or should be sufficient to describe our understanding of God. We need the book. We need the Bible. We need to engage with it ourselves. We need to read it, understand it. We need to be able to find our way about it. And this man, Josiah, he no longer will be living and operating on assumptions or presumptions or suppositions, things handed down to him, things which are just tradition. He's now got the word. He's actually got it in his own hands. So what does he do with it? He puts out a call into Israel. Is there anyone who can help me understand what this means? And a prophetess is found and she can help him understand and does He's got a desire to understand what he now possesses. This is more than curiosity. This is a real passion to know his God and to know the truth of God. And then he goes beyond that and there's a desire to bring God's word to other people. That's how it spreads. And then it goes from bringing God's word and an understanding of it to his own soul and then to other people. What then happens in chapter 35 is he then restarts the Passover so you have national worship reinstated. Where's it all coming from? It's coming from the word of God which was recovered, which was understood, which was shared. All come back to the rediscovery of divine truth. You can get so far with second-hand information, second-hand experience, and Josiah got quite far with it. So he did. He had understood and recognised, maybe from the history of his father's, He'd understood that he needed to turn and seek after God. He'd understood he needed to clean out the house of God. He understood the need for consecration. But you know, 
when it came to things like the Passover and when it came to a real passion to, to know God, then the Word of God was discovered and it was the Word of God that was key. So you have Josiah, 16 years old, seeks God. 20 years old, 26 years old, he discovers divine truth and he seeks to understand God through his word. How does this man's life finish? Well, when you read through, you come to a very sad ending for Josiah. And that's why I read right at the end. And when you read what happened at the end of this man's life, it is no wonder that Jeremiah lamented for him and there was singing and all the rest of it. Because he goes into battle as well. And the archers shot at King Josiah and the king said to his servants, have me away for I am so wounded. He got involved in a whole thing that will not go into between Egypt and so on. And there was a whole political, one of the great battles of history at Kirkemish, he actually intervened and sought to influence it and he lost his life as a consequence. He got involved in someone else's fight he should never have been involved in. He lost his way. So we come to the end of the studies of these revival kings I wonder what we're going to take away from this. When we were thinking about Asa, we were thinking about that beaten path in his life. You remember that analogy? We were thinking about the direction of his life toward the Lord through his word. That beaten path. When you, you think about Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah and Josiah, there are similarities between them. They need to consecrate. They need to clear out the rubbish of sin. They need to make serious decisions at a young age to seek after God and to be serious about your Christian experience. They need to stand, even though others may not stand with you and mock you. They need actually to engage with that which is important and real. Which really just leaves me to finish with this. And the challenge of it. So what exactly will you decide to do at your age, in your circumstance? Will you decide to seek after your God? That's the expression. He sought the God of his father, David. Will you do that? Seek after God with your whole heart. Do not waste the years of your young life, but invest them for eternity by pursuing God with all you've got. Don't hold back. Don't get diverted down other paths, but make that the passion of your life to seek after him and to come to know him. Trust you well. Let's just pray.